All right. Okay, I have to see the time too. Otherwise, these things tend to go for like an hour and a half at least. Uh, this one's going to go for a while just because of the subject matter. And I'm not a concise person, which is problematic. <laughs> so. that's, that's probably Yeah, be a I'm a talker. Welcome to the 84th episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. This is a resource that's designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. In this episode, you're going to hear from lead pastor Nick Gibson as he's interviewing Maggie Flamingo. Maggie is a PhD candidate at UW-Madison in the history department, and she's studying the evangelical doctrine of divorce. So in this episode, you're going to hear Nick and Maggie talk about divorce and remarriage and how we got to the place that we've gotten as an evangelical movement regarding our doctrine around those two things and what we can do as Christians to be a countercultural example to the world. So hopefully you'll hear a pastor's heart in the way that they're discussing these things in this episode. Take a listen. Hey everybody, welcome to the Engage and Equip podcast, a resource designed to help grow substantive disciples for the local church. I'm here today with PhD candidate at UW-Madison in the history department, Maggie Flamingo, and she has spent a good portion of her adult life studying the evangelical doctrine of divorce. Can you just tell us a little bit about just what you, what have you been studying? So people kind of get where you're coming from. All right. Uh, so I study 20th century evangelicalism, and I'm mainly interested in the intellectual trends um, in the church and then how secular trends have influenced those trends within the church. So I look mostly at um, what people are writing about the doctrine of divorce and remarriage, um, both lay people, so in like popular magazines like Christianity Today or Moody Monthly, um, and then also the more heavy theological arguments that are being made kind of by the either the church administration or actual theologians, so kind of the upper, higher echelons of Christian leadership. So I try to uh, navigate both of those worlds within evangelicalism to get um, an idea of how they either coordinate or don't coordinate, which one dictates the policy of the other, etc. Right. So how far back does this go? Well, it was only supposed to go back as far as 1920, but I'm now as far back as 1882. And then I was told that if I go back any further, my advisor will stop reading. So <laughs> it will only go back as far as 1882. I mean, you can always, you can often study more than just what's included in your dissertation, right? Yeah. So ultimately, to be a full-out expert on the subject, I suppose you'd have to know more things, but yeah, I, I mean, you just have to know everything, and there's because you it's okay because you stopped at like 1982, right? Um, so 89, so 89. yeah, okay, yeah. Mm-hmm. okay. Is that when you were born, or like why did you um, choose? No, that? I was born a little bit before then, not, not much. Um, I mainly randomly picked the end of the 80s, I think, just because the 80s was a moment of like a ton of evangelical publishing on divorce remarriage. There was okay. really just a moment when everyone had an opinion. Uh, there was lots of arguments happening. Um, but it's also a moment when the church started shifting its conversation about marriage more towards um, homosexual versus heterosexual marriage. And so I didn't oh, really want to yeah. enter into that debate because it's a bit that's, unpopular on campus these days. Well, there's that. And there's also like, that's just a whole other literature. Yeah, and so I was like, I can't, I can't do that. And so I just stopped. As the millennials say, I can't even. I can't even. Even. Yeah, exactly. I'm very okay, good at so, saying that. All right. So let's say, because there's a uh, high point has is overrepresented with people who are under 35. Okay. And so a lot of them don't just like, don't get it. Like they have no idea what happened 
in the evangelical discussion on this that happened 1989 or before. So is maybe tell us, okay, so let me break this down for you since you said you were saying before you're not concise. Can you tell us a little bit about sort of like what was happening in the whole, like just on the popular evangelical level in those days, like let's say 89 back to let's say 70 ish. Mm-hmm. Um, when the, so was it the, was it Gothard that was doing the seminars all over the country? And there was a lot of very, there was kind of a uptick both in how people looked at divorce in the seventies in relationship to secular influence. And then there was also kind of like a, Oh, movement in the evangelical church in some parts. Can you frame that? Yeah. So in the seventies and eighties, I mean, I think it even boils down to more simplistic thing. More people were getting divorced. I mean, it just, the, there was a really dramatic rise in divorce after the sexual revolution. And so you have a lot of people that are blaming it on feminism. They're saying that it's all, you know, women's rebellion is what it was called in a lot of the conservative evangelical um, newsletters and things. They're saying, you know, our women are out of control. So like, honest yeah. to God, I got a call a couple of years ago about the fact that I, our church did not take a clear position on women wearing pants. Uh, yep. Because women wearing pants was clearly like an effect of the sexual revolution and a rebellious streak in women. And just fostering that was not a good idea. And uh, like, honestly, okay, so I'm 41. Honestly, I had never heard that before. And I, I am given to outlandish arguments because I tend to think people group think in a particular direction and you should really, so I tend to be a contrarian and be like, well, everybody's thinking that maybe I should look at this. Mm -hmm. That's just my temperament. And so I'm open to things that seem crazy like that. Cause like there's sometimes a kernel of truth in there. That's a helpful corrective, but that was really new to me. And I was like, Oh, I'm supposed to tell women not to wear pants, but that was connected with like a, the whole sexual revolution, rock music, disestablishment, all of that is connected. Right. And my perception. So you tell me why this is wrong if you want, or you can just ignore it and go on depending on how diplomatic you are. My feeling is that there was a sense in the 1960s that it was all connected. I mean, the Peter Paul Mary were like, there's this tide rising and you need need to get on board or you'll be swept away. And part part of the reason why the sexual revolution felt so right, I think, is this a feeling I get from reading all of this, is because it was connected to desegregation. And everybody knew so clearly that the way blacks were treated in America was wrong. And then it felt like the war in Vietnam kind of felt really wrong. And it felt like, man, if our elders got both of those things that wrong, they're probably wrong on most of the establishment stuff, right? And so sex is probably wrong and gender stuff. It's all probably wrong. Do you feel like that was true? That like it almost felt like a package deal, like a political platform almost. And it sort of all went together. Women in pants and and Jim Crow, man, they're the same. It's the same basic. Well, I mean, you're you're getting into some kind of contentious historical argumentation there because um, the women's rights movement and like racial equality actually have a pretty, um, I I don't want to say contentious history, but they don't get along necessarily well because they have very similar goals when it comes to equality, but Mm -hmm. their, their tactics are often quite different. Like in the news today, Mm -hmm. like there was an African-American pastor who's like, Hey, if women kneel during the national anthem, they're stealing our movement. Yeah. Like that literally was in the news today. Exactly. So there's always been this tension between the two mm-hmm. movements. Um, and I think that um, saying that they were lumped together uh, during the sexual revolution is a little problematic. But you, you can definitely say that for youth, like when they're in the, the just, colleges uh, just and things the, like that. Maggie, just for the listeners, yeah. I want to clarify that when a, pers- a doctoral candidate says a little problematic, they mean that's wrong. <laughs> 
That's what they I, mean by that. I mean, so, it's, it's or a lot of people in that field would say that's wrong. Yeah. And there's a Latin phrase. What's the, do you know what the Latin phrase for the scholar should be believed in her field is? I don't. There's a sexy that. Latin mm-hmm. phrase you can say that's like, listen to the experts. I don't remember right now. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. So in the 70s and 80s, this was happening. Yeah. So in the 70s and 80s, just a lot more people are getting divorced, um, and churches are starting to realize they can no longer take this case by case basis approach that they had in the past, um, mm-hmm. which had its problems um, because it would often lead to favoritism and economic inequality and things like that. So you get all of these evangelical institutions, missionary organizations, for example, Wheaton College, Biola, all these others that are starting to have to actually delineate their their policy. Biola is the Biblical Institute of Los Angeles, Correct. Yeah. which was a fundamentalist school mm-hmm. that started in those days because the secular colleges were so secular. Yeah, well, much and, earlier. I mean, they, they were started in like the 19... 19- yeah, yeah. fundamentalist country. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. About the same was time it as the late nineteen sixty Biola. I think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they were they were definitely a twenty. But if you've heard school. of Talbot Seminary today, that is at Biola University. Mm-hmm. Right. right. So I have things to say about Louis Talbot and his position on divorce. But anyway. Okay. Um. So what's going on in the seventies and eighties is that divorce rates are rocketing, and people are really troubled by this. Everyone is deeply concerned that the American family is falling apart because of the sexual revolution. No one knows what their identity is anymore. America is going to fall uh, to the communists until the end of the Cold War. Um, because they were very anti-family. So that was always, you know, right. a huge political concern. You have the political right. pat- platform of the religious right um, that's right. very pro-family. I mean, G.K. Chesterton was saying, I think, in the 1920s or earlier, that the modern, like, the socialist state had to be at war with the individual Catholic family as the locus of the formation of the human being. Yeah, that, yeah, that definitely has a very deep history as far mm-hmm. as, like, yeah. And that's one thing I will say. Evangelicals have always, it, like every piece of research that I have, I have read from the 1880s, been completely panicked about divorce rates, which is to us kind of funny because we go back and we go, well, in 1882, the divorce rate was like 7% and they thought it was like doomsday. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is a continual trend like that. That rhetoric doesn't really change. Um, so that's been kind of interesting to see how... So- do you the think divorce it, rate keeps going up, but okay, the panic so is even. Because this is a church podcast, mm-hmm. part of what people are expecting is for you to switch out of scholar mode at some point and say what you think. Uh-huh. And they want that from you, Maggie. I'm sure they do. So like... Lots of people want that from me. And you're... Is you say that is that your way of saying you're not going to do it? Oh no, I mean I can certainly give my my view. Do you think... So do you think this was, this was always a... Do you think that, that divorce is the sort of gremlin growing monster that you should should always be panicked even if the divorce rate is two percent because it's so given to the human nature to not face difficulty and suffering and trial and human growth and to always take what seems like an easier way out and to brutalize the weaker person in any union by leaving them or do you think that there's a or do you think that there's a percentage like 12 percent or 24 percent where you're like yeah you better panic because there's tipping points or there's there's a, an amount of dissolution of the family that the greater society that is unioned, so to speak, in these like stable family units can bear. Well, that's a very sociological question. Right. I'm not a sociologist, okay. so I don't. I'm so not into. I'm not that. into tipping points. That's just not my thing. I'm like, yeah, go yeah. talk to a sociologist about that one. Um, there's yeah. there is a lot of talk about that. That divorce rates above maybe fifteen percent. Mm-hmm. create a huge sociological problem that is that is very difficult to deal with. Well, I mean, there's no denying divorce is bad. 
I mean, that just as a blanket statement, I don't think anyone out there is, yeah. There's no denying? I, I, I don't think so. Not okay. when, it, I mean, not in, on an individual level. Okay. I could say that, that that's where arguments can happen. Okay. But as far as on a societal level, divorce is not good for society when it happens. Um, the option to divorce can be argued as good for society. Okay. Because if you have a society where that is not a possibility, you are creating a society where there is deep inequality and abusive situations, et cetera, et cetera. Yes. But like divorce itself, like even your most liberal academics, like sociologists who are saying, you know, yes, women's feminism, like we need all of these free unions and everything. They're not going to look at statistics and go, oh, they have an 80% divorce rate. Yay. Like mm -hmm. that's, that's terrible. And so no one is going to make that argument. Okay. Um, but again, that option to divorce, things like that, that, that's a different argument to be had. Okay. All right. So back to the 70s and 80s okay so back to the 70s and 80s um so i i my question though is why are we focusing on the 70s and 80s just because that's because there's a lot of christians in the evangelical church still who like lived through that and that mm -hmm. was kind of a defining era for them it's and it's when they formed their view of divorce right so for example like guys on our elder board at high point church sure for a lot of those guys that's when they sort of determined mm -hmm. what they should think about that. Right. And so when the average 24 year old comes in a high point church and talks with one of them, they may feel like there's it. They may feel like that mm -hmm. this is strange. Why okay. do you think that is? Yeah. So I think a couple of key so things. So if you don't to... want to go back to that era and you just want to explain why that's happening between those two sorts of people, mm -hmm. that would be fine too. Yeah. I mean, the, the thing with the eighties that I think is really important is that it was a moment in evangelical culture overall, and this is a very broad statement, um, where people just agreed to disagree. Um, and so you get books like InterVarsity Presses, you know, Three Views of Divorce, where literally the same book gives you the same passages and tells you three different ways to think about it. And you're just kind of left sitting there. Um, and this is happening at the same time that you have like the Council on Biblical Inerrancy, which had its third summit on family and ethical issues. And so you had those same experts that are writing those books for InterVarsity Press that are giving their papers at the summit on biblical inerrancy, talking about gender roles and talking about divorce, remarriage. And you have people people answering their papers. So again, they're giving multiple views because even if you break it down towards traditional lines, denominationally, or even just conservative versus liberal interpretation, you get the same arguments about divorce remarriage. So there's not necessarily consensus. Like all Presbyterians don't believe the same thing about divorce remarriage. All Baptists don't believe the same thing about and divorce remarriage. Is that a function mainly of the fundamentalist modernist controversy that you have no. a conservative and liberal or is it... Because I'm not, not familiar not with actually that many different arguments. And when I read your article where you kind of outlined some of them, uh -huh. I mean, that's all the stuff I've always read. I mm -hmm. mean, you are, of course, much more sophisticated. But, I mean, it's like, you know, it's kind of like, okay, here are the like four most important passages. And, oh, and there's, some that have, there's some that have certainly like risen and fallen since then. Um, mm -hmm. There's newer ones. So David Instone Brewer is the really big one that's influential today, which is outside of my purview. But he actually brings in um, Exodus 20, um, a passage about concubines, uh, which I think is a little sketch, but whatever. Um, and he talks about that as far as like making it... Um, a reference to like your health and your well-being and how that might actually be a reason to divorce. Um, and so there's there's lots of different um, interpretations that kind of come in, but it boils down to two major views um, where you have in traditional Protestant theology, the view that you are allowed to divorce for desertion or adultery. Mm -hmm. And then the question is, are you then allowed to remarry? 
And that's where it really gets controversial. And so you have people that are saying, well, yes, of course, divorce implies remarriage. And then you have others like, well, it doesn't explicitly say that. So we have to actually add all this extra biblical information, which in the 1920s is very modernist. As a modern evangelical Uh and somebody who studied my grandfather and father's generation of evangelicalism, but not, I'm living this one kind Uh of, you know. Yeah. Here, I would disagree with that. Let me disagree with my, that in terms of my experience. Sure. Um, that's never the question I end up running into. I Very recently, I had a counseling session with somebody who was an evangelical from the 70s and 80s who had been a pastor, who had been influenced by a lot of that kind of literature, and he had been divorced, and he wanted my advice about whether or not I thought it was biblical for him to get remarried. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the first conversation of that kind I've had in 20 years of ministry. Now, the first 15 years, only 15 years, that's with, with exclusively adults. And the first seven of that was in the South in Panama city, which is the, which is one of the top three divorce capitals of the country. And I was a Methodist, which tends to be pretty liberal on this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but the questions always seemed to be, how far can we push the abandonment clause? Right. That post, be- yeah, post eighties. That's absolutely what the conversation has been. But I would say that actually okay. in the seventies and eighties, making the argument for the abandonment clause was actually a bigger deal, especially yeah. in the seventies, which whether is why there Craig was actually Keener's a second, view is so key. Yeah, whether or not there was actually a second clause, because Jesus does say only, except for except mm-hmm. for adultery mm-hmm. in the Gospels, and so that sounds like it's the only one. Yeah, it's sexual immorality actually, but right. yeah, mm-hmm. pornea. Mm-hmm. But then it seems like in First Corinthians seven, Paul is making some kind of argument in relationship to abandonment. If Correct. he leaves, let him go. Mm-hmm. A believer is not bound in such situations, which is relatively vague language. It is, unless you're familiar familiar with how Jewish bills of divorcement works. In which case, it is a, an echoing of the Jewish bill of divorce, which says that a wife is free to remarry. To remarry, mm-hmm. right, right. Yeah, that's how I take it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, which would mean that it is a second clause, which can be confusing because sometimes people be like, well, wait, right? didn't Jesus say only? And that's also and- because we are much more willing to talk about what's going on in the Pauline literature in more, more modern evangelical conversations than like traditional Protestants were necessarily. Although Does I would say mean? with the Reformation, they were like... Traditionally, desertion is based off of Paul. Uh, The Pauline literature has gained profound popularity in evangelicalism in the 20th century uh, in a way that it didn't necessarily have. Not that people didn't talk about Paul a lot, but Mm. kind of elevating Paul to the level of Christ's actual words. um, I would say that's that's more of a 20th century evangelical phenomenon um, for certain things. So, for example, I just listened to a discussion by uh, Beth Allison Barr, who comes out of Baylor University, and she's comparing um, the use of gender roles, like Paul's description of gender, Mm. um, from the medieval texts, like marriage ceremonies and everything versus today. Um, and she says it's it's unreal, like out of the thousands upon thousands of sermons that talked about like gender roles at all, like Paul just was not mentioned, like maybe three times. Um, okay. And so like the way that that has shifted um, in Christian literature. Was the literature. view of gender roles different? Um, I mean, that's the thing though, right? Like in that time, like in medieval time, they didn't have our kind of gender structure. So 
But as far as like the marriage roles go, uh, her big argument is that like the wedding ring was actually seen not as um, to show the wife's submission to her husband, but to show her submission to God. And so she makes the argument that a lot of the times um, when they are talking about submission in medieval times, they're focused more on submission to God. And we kind of have lost that in 20th century evangelical literature, which is yeah. interesting. But anyway, that's that's a digression. Don't you think they had a, a much more like submission was relevant to many more of the hierarchical relationships in human existence. So they saw everything as a system of hierarchies and therefore you, they, you had many submissions in your life. And like in, in even a modern evangelical that absolutely believes in a role of submission of a wife to a husband within the context of marriage. And that that being a application of really her submission to God and his submission to God, mm-hmm. that that's like the only one like there's that maybe you're supposed to obey the law and submit to government. If you read Romans 13 carefully, there might be three submissional based relationships in human life. But in the medieval times, like it was, there was submission to your vocation and submission in your marriage. And there was submission to all kinds of things. It's true. Um, So we can ask, well, did they just take that for granted? Um, But even if they did, why weren't they using Paul to reinforce that? I mean, it's an interesting question, right? In relation to marriage, as somebody who's read hundreds and hundreds of pages of the church fathers in the first five centuries, I would not have said that. Mm -hmm. I would have said they don't ignore the gospels and old Testament like modern evangelicals often do. But they, but the idea I would say I, I would, I have no perception of, Paul's writings not being treated as the authoritative and infallible word of God in the church fathers. Oh, I'm not saying that 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 we treat it as less than infallible, um, but just the idea that what lens, yeah, what lens are you interpreting each text Mm -hmm. through? So, do you start with Paul and then you read Jesus through Paul, or do you start with Christ and read Paul through His words? Right. So, and I think that's where you get the major difference between the minority view and the majority view. So, if you start with Christ's words, you know, any divorce or remarriage after divorce is adultery, except right, and He's got that exception clause, except for sexual immorality. It's like okay. Well, then we're going to read Paul's text where he says, "You're not bound." But you clearly are bound because you're going to have an adulterous relationship if we read Christ that way. So it's, it's a matter of hierarchy as far as what lens you're reading mm-hmm. through and how you're interpreting the exception clause. And yes. that you see much more so in the first half of the 20th century, reading Christ first, Paul second. Um, and that's somewhat, actually, it's not somewhat, it's completely flipped uh, in the discussion in the 80s. And so that's happening, I would argue, Got in it. the 70s and 80s. That's happening, especially too, because with the women's rights movement and the sexual revolution, you have the argument, and it's a very powerful argument, that the church has done some terrible things when it comes to asking women to stay in abusive relationships. And we have that, I mean, not even in the 70s, 80s, we had that, you know, with Paige Patterson. Yeah. Um, And so you have these sorts of situations. um, And the church had to come to terms with the fact that they'd been treating women extremely poorly in these situations. And so how do we then have a good argument against that? And we say, well, that's abandonment, abuse, right? It's an it's it's active uh, abandonment exactly, rather than passive, right? And so that I think, in many ways, elevated um, the the First Corinthians, which seven. is a Pandora's mm-hmm. box. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because if there's moral equivalence to it, I mean, you can make an argument for moral equivalent to almost anything equaling a, a just divorce. Then, so, right? Yeah. And this is the things I've struggled with in pastoral practice is the scope to which the word abuse is imagined to be rightly applied 
has expanded incredibly. And people tend to feel and um, think about themselves as abused when they are abusive too. They just don't, they don't really, it's kind of like a basketball player that remembers the shots they make and not the ones they miss. You know, like I've had couples that are screaming at each other, the most virulent and horrific things in front of me in a counseling office. And she's like, do you see how he abuses me? Or vice versa. The guy sometimes would say that too. And I'm like, um, I'm not sure this is, this is what we call it. I mean, yes, you are being abusive towards each other, but this is not like you're being a nice person and this other person is just wantonly attacking you. Right. And that's you know? also interesting to me historically is how the question of innocence versus guilt plays a role in 20th century debates over um, divorce and remarriage because there's always been this, um, because of the Pauline literature, this idea that the innocent party is the one that's able to remarry without guilt um, mm-hmm. you know that they have every right to remarry and so you get this kind of like church or church leadership acting as judge of innocence um, and then you have the minority view that takes the position well there's never an innocent party right like if, if you look at just any human marriage or any human relationship like yeah they might have been the one who went out and cheated on their spouse but you know the other person was doing what at home right like there there might have been a cause and so you get these mm-hmm. really to me they're very odd debates over like what level should we play as judging um if this person is like innocent enough uh that they could get remarried and therefore keep their job at wheaton for example yeah but it seems like if you open the sort of Pandora's box of the abandonment clause, especially if you you say that there's active abuse is active abandonment, you're driving the person away rather than leaving them. And that, that is therefore then cause for divorce. And then somebody says, this person's abusing me. We should be divorced. If you're a church that believes in any kind of adjudication of anything, you do end up playing ball in that sandpit, so to speak. Like you, you have to be like, okay, um, what's going on? And are, is this abuse and how do we, you know? And yeah, I mean, I, and I think that kind of is what directs the whole debate back to, well, then what is marriage, right? Like how do you think about marriage to an imperfect person where there's going to be cases where they'll do, they do things wrong, and they will do things wrong. They, there will definitely be moments where they're not taking care of you. There will be things you can interpret as abuse. Um, right. So what level then is it where you're not being like forgiving and Christ-like and extending grace to them, but you're mm-hmm. actually doing what you need to do to protect your life or your children, right? So, um, and I think that really boils down to a better doctrine of marriage rather than a better doctrine of divorce. Okay. That would be great. Um, so, okay. So what, what are some of the things you, so you spent a lot of your studying this. Are there things that you've discovered that you're like, Oh gosh, I wish people who talked about this knew this. Hmm. That's a very good question. I, I think that there's lots of moments where I see the way that people who have been divorced have been treated in the church that, echoes or that reminds me of the way that we treat sexual minorities in the church today. So I think for me, as I'm reading this, the things that kind of convict me the most or that I hope I can show the wider evangelical community is that um, no matter what your stance is on divorce and remarriage, um, 
the way that evangelicals have treated people who have been divorced has been pretty tragic, uh, especially when it comes to telling them, all right, like all of these verses apply now to you. Um, like you should be single, you know, your services to God, but we're going to shut every single door of ministry to you. And I think that's exactly what we're doing to sexual minorities today. We're saying, you know what, we believe in the tr traditional sexual ethic. So you're stuck being single the rest of your life. Um, good luck with that. Leave us alone. Um, or, you know, you stay in your corner, you stay in your pew because you're dangerous yeah. to us. Okay. So, all right. Part of my contrarian nature mm -hmm. is I have heard evangelicals for years and years, like what I would consider deride the church and mm -hmm. just like, it's always doing stuff wrong and blah, right. Okay. And I'm not saying that you're doing it. Oh, I absolutely am doing that. No, no, no. I'm, I'm not saying you're doing it unwarrantedly. But I want to be really careful about this. One, because mm -hmm. theologically, I believe Christians should be really careful about critiquing the church publicly in ways that are in any way uncharitable, right? right. They, it should always mm -hmm. be positively for its good. But so I want to make sure that people who are listening really understand the argument you're making, because I think it's an important one and it's one we really could evaluate how we're doing, mm -hmm. which is to say, you're saying that there's like a catch 22. Yeah. That the abuse of it, you're not saying. You might say this also, but you're not saying this right now. You're not saying um, people are just uh, ostracized and hated because they get divorced. And I'm saying the we don't know what to do right with now them. Is, right. The argument you're making right now is you're saying in the Bible, one of the things it says in 1 Corinthians 7 about single people is, is that they don't have to deal with the fact that they're supposed to please their spouse. That they have this obligation within the family relationship. And because of that, there are things they don't get like comfort and such from those romantic relationships. But the opportunity that they do have is that their, their time is completely free and completely theirs. And if they belong fully to Christ, they could use a disproportionate amount of that time to serve him in all kinds of various ways. And one way is to serve Christ is to serve Christ among his people in the church. And yet serving in such a way, there are certain moral requirements that the church requires from people, right? And if getting the divorce or being divorced, you enter into this group of people considered too not moral enough or not a godly enough example to engage in these ministries, now you've got this time, you want to obey the Bible in spending a disproportionate amount of time like ministering to people, and yet now you are for moral reasons not allowed to do it. And you're saying that's basically what we do with same-sex attracted Christians. We're like a little nervous about them morally. And we don't want to ask really direct questions about what's going on in their sex life or whatever. And we just kind of go, we just don't call them, you know, and like, they're just supposed to be fine. And because it's just either it's uncomfortable or we don't know what to do or we're afraid what somebody else might think or. Whatever. I think like, and I understand that level of anxiety um, especially because there are passages that talk about holding leadership to a higher standard and that matters. Um, however, I think that there is a fear and a threat that we sometimes put on those communities. Um, and I see that particularly with divorced women more than divorced men in the 20th century, where they're seen as a threat to people's marriages. So for example, um, women. in the, in, I think it was 1982. Yeah. I heard, yeah, I heard a, a survey data recently that 40% of women within a certain age bracket say that they have engaged in spouse poaching. That's not in the church. That's just like in New York City with younger women. Yeah, I've, I've heard you talk about that before. Um, and I think that's mostly yeah. related to educational disparities right now, though, is my, is my theory. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think that has a lot to do with just how marriage is viewed in our society overall, that it is seen yes. as a way to climb a ladder now, and it is in no way whatsoever viewed as permanent. Um, I have lots to say about that. But um, speaking specifically about the church, there was one woman who was um, c- came to Christ as an adult, and she had been married for like a week as a teenager. Um, and when she became a Christian, she just had this deep conviction that she still had a husband out there. Like it just immediately, she was like, oh, I've got to go find this guy. So she went, she talked to him and he's like, well, I'm not interested in marrying you again. She's like, oh, all right. So I'm single. And she was fine with that. Like there was never any deep struggle for her to like, she's like, okay, so I'm just going to be single. And she was convinced that she was supposed to go to the mission field. Like just, she knew this, that she had that um, path in front of her. And she had such a difficult time finding any mission organization that would accept her because because she had been married for one week and she had no desire to, to get remarried. She was not allowed. So she ended up going to a Bible college in Philadelphia. She was not allowed to carpool with the men at her school. Be, was that and, Karen? Was it Philadelphia College of the Bible? Was that what? Was it Philadelphia College of the Bible? I believe so, yeah. Okay. Um, and she was told like, by her Bible teacher um, that like, if you're divorced, the doors of ministry are shut to you. And she went up to her, her teacher and she's like, well, I'm divorced, but I am absolutely convinced that I'm going to be a missionary. And he's like, oh, I don't actually agree with that. That's just the school policy. Um, she had to sign a document <laughs> promising to never date, which she had no problem doing because, again, she had no interest in that. Yeah. Um, but over and over again, she just had all of these doors shut to her. And she did eventually find a place. But I think that's kind of indicative of a, of a problem that, especially when it comes to divorced people, like they're put into a very specific category where mm-hmm. they're seen as threatening because of what they might do rather than actually seen as, well, like, but let's look positively. What might they do, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's some pretty fantastic things that we can do, especially if you are someone who is taking a more conservative position and saying, yeah, they have to be single the rest of their life because they're not reconciled to their spouse. So I yeah. think ex- for those who take that position in the church and then also don't give a place of like vocation, like that's problematic. And that's something that I see, um, I think has very modern implications. Yeah. Man, Maggie, I don't know hardly anybody like that woman though now. Oh, I know lots, but I come from a very conservative Christian background. Uh, So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's true. And I think there's a log gym related that you actually, in your article, one of the articles I read in prep for this, you actually said something about the way we care for single people, but that's another conversation. It is. It is and I think like that, that is a real log jam because there's that whole issue of divorce, but there's also the whole issue of just like single people and how the church relates to them. And for example, when I was coming out of seminary, there were a bunch of guys that I would have said were as uh, godly and talented and educated as me for pastoral ministry. And the ones that were married found churches quickly. And the ones that were single couldn't find any church in America interested in hiring them. And um, I remember when I was in Florida, we had a single guy who was in his forties apply to be our children's minister. And it was just a non-starter. And it, and it was mainly the, it was the women more than anybody else who were like, no, we don't want this guy around our kids. And I, I privately straight up asked him if he was same sex attracted. Cause I, I thought it was relevant to know, but for me, like I, I mainly want to know about how you deal with your sexuality, no matter what your sexuality is. Like, how do you see it? What's how do you theologically understand it? What are you striving toward? Where are your weaknesses? What's the blah, blah, blah. Right. 
And he wasn't, he was like, no, I just haven't found the right woman. I'd love to be married. I'm, I'm interested in getting married. And it was just the women in the church were just like, I don't want a single guy around our kids. It was just, you know, I'd just rather find somebody else. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, I, I see a lot of that. Um, and, and, and it's I think- because most people don't want, most people don't want a single vocation. Right. And they therefore want to be married. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying. And then people start wondering what's wrong with them, that they're not successful right. in getting married. Yeah. And I I could bring in some nitpicky things that you have said in the past that I think feed into you, that you kind are of invited cultural to do so. um, Like you argument. should, because I would, yeah. I would just assume people not make the many and voluminous mistakes that I make. Oh, okay. All right. Well, I think there is definitely, when it comes to single women, for example, Mm -hmm. there's the argument that if you're well-educated, you have chosen education over family. And I think that there's a few things that you've said in past podcasts that feed into that kind of like, oh, well, you have to be very careful about how you view education because, and I I think you're right, family is more important than education. But making the the assumption, I'm going to finish this, making the assumption that someone who has pursued higher education that they have made a choice to do that rather than to have children or that a woman in her 30s who is childless wanted that. Um, mm-hmm. That is an assumption that a lot of people in the church make. And I think it is a very hurtful assumption to make. Yeah. And well. I think one of the things that UW, even though UW is not known to be an evangelical institution, one of the things that they've done well is my understanding is their maternity policy for PhD students especially women is actually decently generous that like you can take a year off and you can there's like a lot of and because part of it is one of the people that i i remember hearing a berkeley women's studies professor who was an atheist to talk about this she was talking to her students and she's and, and, and this is more for me a gripe about how we engage in the educational process and how high level success in education often requires a level of commitment in the most fertile years of women's lives where they mm-hmm. end up having to make choices. And so she, she was saying to her women's studies PhD students, how she had had to go through like in vitro fertilization and she had all these infertility issues. And they were like, she could see the like 24 year old scorn on their faces. Right. Of like, Oh, it's, and she's like, this is going to happen to all of you. You're not going to get your PhD until you're 34. You're going to like, you may not be married. Like, like you think that it's this, but like you're, your years of like starting a family are passing you by while you're doing this. And there, now there's some women that I know that are in that vocation and they're like, look, I was looking for a guy the whole way. I did not find one. There's a great professor at Trinity, Dana Harris, who she was, she's in her fifties. Now I think when I was in seminary, she was in her four early, very early forties. And she was like, look, I, I would love to get married. I would love to marry a guy right now. I have not found the guy interested in me that I was interested in that I wanted to enter in the vocation of marriage with. And so I'm doing this. And so learn your Greek verbs. And I thought that she did, I thought that Dana has done a great job and she's fairly intimidating because she went to Stanford. She like, I think she was, she was an aide at Hoover. She worked in Washington for a little while. Like sometimes these women are very formidable and men, there's a lot of men in their lives that are too weak to take them on. And that's really not their fault. I tend to bemoan this, the, I want to bemoan the environment and the context because I think that I think you're right. I don't think some women have chosen the path that they're on. They would prefer for it to be different. And it's not them that have often failed. Like it's something else or it's just like life. This is the hand you got to play the hand you're dealt as they say. And if life doesn't go this way, you have to have to push another way. And so, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. So I think the question then is how do we take those people um, and 
put them within an evangelical culture that in many ways idolizes families. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that overall is one of the major questions that I've dealt with as I do my research in the 20th century. Because I think there's been some um, moments when evangelicals have really made great strides and starting to be more accepting or starting to realize the fact that, hey, like we have this population in our church, they're Christ followers, they're going to be with us for eternity. um, Mm -hmm. And yet we disagree with the choices they made regarding their marriage. Mm -hmm. We're not going to kick them out. uh, So what do we do? Like, and how do we love them? Right? And how do we focus on reconciliation that in a way that is broader than just the reconciliation between that wife and that husband. And I think that is a very important pattern that is more so in the latter decades of the 20th century. So those questions. Do you think at the same time that there are ways in which the evangelical church hasn't been conservative enough? Oh, absolutely. I take a a pretty conservative view of divorce and remarriage myself, actually. Um, Not the most conservative view of divorce and remarriage, Mm -hmm. um, but I I tend more towards that because of my background. Um, And so I think that in many ways, um, so when people like give me like, oh, so I have this friend, you know, and this is the situation. And like before I even hear all the details, I'm like, nope, they shouldn't get divorced. Like Mm -hmm. almost every single time you should not get divorced. They need to grow up. That's what they need to do. Yeah. Yeah, people are not perfect. And like almost every single time there's there's something where you're being asked to forgive or you're being asked to submit to God's asking you to stay in a situation that you don't like. Now, that does not apply to abusive situations. I don't want anyone to think that that is what I'm saying because mm-hmm. I'm not saying that. Um, but for example, the argument, well, I just don't love him anymore. Well, then right. you're not defining love correctly. Right. So that that would be I, I, those yeah. kind of arguments don't work on me. Yeah. And I would think would that, you also yeah. say, OK, this is maybe a dangerous question for you to answer. So you can punt it if you want. Would you also say that if you were to rank debuse, abuse on a scale of one to 20, like 20 is someone is currently shooting at you and they've hit you once, but it was a flesh wound. And one is like, I don't like that dress. OK, mm-hmm. that level one is not abuse that is that is relevant to question of divorce on the basis of abuse that somewhere between seven and 20 there's a threshold that we would have to sort out in a by means of wisdom or something but it's not one two or three and i also don't think it's something that should be put on so let's say it's the more traditional example of a woman, right? If, if that's on her shoulders, that's not necessarily just her decision to make. Like that's when there should be a Christian community involved. Um, and I think that's one of the problems that I have with a lot of the discussions that happen about abuse and divorce remarriage. It's always like, well, can't she leave? It's like, well, she's in danger. She needs to leave. Right. And men in the church need to step up and find out what's going on because she shouldn't yeah. be the one confronting her husband about this problem. Right. Especially if her husband's abusive. Exactly. He's likely to track her down wherever she is. Right. You know, I mean, I've, we've had, Lexi and I have had women whose husbands threatened them physically. And I was like, you should come over and stay with us because I have a lot of guns and I know how to use them. And you should tell your husband that before you come over here and we'll let the police know too. Cause like they, uh, like that's why there's battered women's shelters, right? Because there are, there are few places where abusive husbands are not afraid to track their wives down when they flee. Mm -hmm. But like no husband has ever tried to track their wife down at my house. And, and I think there's also an element of where the, so using your scale, like the one and the two, these, these verbal 
um, abuse situations, yeah. we're taught that those are red flags. Like I think women are taught right. really well right now that those are red flags, but it's very hard to tell when is that going to escalate. And I think that's when, again, mm-hmm. you need more involvement from other people, even though they can't live in your marriage. And so it's obviously going to be difficult. Um, right. Yeah. And right. there's a lot going on there psychologically. There's a lot going on economically. Um, you know, you have situations where women feel like they can't leave because what are they going to do? Right. right. Um, and so I think that's that's definitely where the church needs to be more involved than just saying, well, you know, he didn't hit you yet, so you can't divorce him. Like there's a lot of ground to cover before that conversation even happens. Um, yeah. yeah. But that's definitely, I mean, above all, that is the trickiest of all the questions when it comes to divorce and remarriage is when it enters that realm of an abusive situation. Okay. So I'm going to try to nail you down right now. Okay. Sure. It sounds like from what you've said that you believe that you, you just take Jesus' word in the gospels that in the case of adultery, divorce is permitted. Mm-hmm. At least divorce is permitted. Yeah. It sounds like you think remarriage is permitted at least for the non-offending spouse i think if it applies to the non-offending spouse then logically it has to apply to the offending offending spouse as well because they're already an adulterer because because then it boils down to the question of covenant has the covenant been broken or not i mean really that's what the whole question of remarriage boils down to if you believe that it can be broken then remarriage is on the table if you believe that it can't then no remarriage because it's is it right to say there is no discussion of remarriage in the Bible other than like, in the Old you're not allowed to remarry somebody that you divorced that somebody else married and then died right? or divorced. Mm-hmm. Like there is a few like narrow. Yeah, there's a like few that. and where a woman's not allowed to remarry a priest um, in certain situations. Yeah. I mean, the Old Testament talks about. But very few. And, it, and that seems to as much prove that that argument also proves too much because it means that the assumption is every other remarriage is fine. Mm-hmm. Right. So. The, the the issue is is like the, is the moral extrapolation. So the question is theological because you're assuming certain things on the basis of your theology, which means the question of the covenant is the relevant question. But right. it sounds like you also think that First Corinthians seven, what's sometimes called the abandonment clause, the idea that a believer is not bound, is also a legitimate. Like you are a twentieth century evangelical. It sounds like you think that that's legitimate. That if a husband were to abandon his wife, and essentially divorce her by function she could then apply for divorce legally to get the paper because that is what the Old Testament actually commands. It says, look, Mm -hmm. if you send your wife away, you have to write her an attainder of divorce so that she is legally free and any other man knows that he can marry her, right? right? Mm -hmm. And so Paul's basically saying that's still valid if a woman is sent away or if a spouse is sent away or, or abandoned by their spouse, they can make the divorce official by applying for a divorce or receiving divorce, right? It sounds like you also buy the argument that abuse is active abandonment rather than passive and that at at least some relative threshold of abuse that that accounts for a true thrusting away of the spouse that the husband or the wife is putting away their spouse by means of abuse because they're too much of a coward or too immoral to simply just to divorce them honorably if they're going to be that wicked. But I have to say I'm also someone who is deeply convinced by the stories I've heard of reconciliation, that there is a wiser path than just simply getting remarried to someone new. And I think that that often is the path of profound and supernatural patience and waiting to see if that reconciliation could happen. So I think that even in cases where people have been divorced, that their primary 
I don't want to say command from God, because I'm not sure it's a standard, but I think the ideal, which we should all be striving for, is that you reconcile with your spouse. And so there are moments, of course, where that reconciliation is not possible. If your ex-spouse gets remarried, that's off the table. And so I think that changes the conversation. But I do think... So you don't think the option of polygamy in the Old Testament is relevant to that? No, I don't. Okay, so that's a really interesting point. So on one level, that is a more careful reading, I think, of 1 Corinthians 7, where it says, it's one of the only places where the Bible says you shouldn't do something, but if you do, do it this way. Right. I can't, I can't think of anywhere else in the whole Bible something like that is said, where it says a wife shouldn't, I think it says a wife must not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, mm-hmm. right? So there is a specific clause in context for separation, that separation should clearly not be done lightly. Right. Virtually anything else that can be done should be done instead of separation. However, if staying with your husband or wife is unworkable or something mm-hmm. we'll just leave it vague at that you can separate and that's okay like that is a reasonable thing you can do and that seems to be preferable to divorce because in the divorce clause it assumes that the if you get divorced on the abandonment clause it is because of the activity of the other person right mm-hmm. and yet that separation that assumes abuse some kind of thing that makes the marriage unworkable which this gets at this sort of like anti-feminist assumption in your argument here, which I'm interested for you to understand because I think you understand good feminism well. If you say that the, the concept of reconciliation is a, should be an extraordinarily high value if you understand the Bible as a whole, yet every divorce presupposes abuse of one kind or another, either the abuse of adultery, sexual abuse, of unfaithfulness, the abuse of abandonment, right? economic abandonment or personal abandonment or the abuse of direct abuse of physical abuse, sexual abuse, chemical substance abuse, verbal abuse, or some combination thereof. Right. And that you're saying the Bible has an extremely high ethic of reconciliation. You're arguing if you reconcile with a sinner, all sin is abuse. Right. Of yourself and others in God's rule. You're saying that you should reconcile with abusers. Yeah. Yeah. So, Imagine you're talking to a horrified feminist. Oh, I've, would, I've had these conversations. Yeah. So how, if I was a horrified feminist, <laughs> I would be, I'd be like, you're saying, but you're saying is a woman. Now you're saying a woman or a man. You're not being sexist about it, yeah. but you are saying that a woman, and it's arguable that the woman, women are sometimes physically weaker and so more susceptible to physical abuses mm-hmm. and so on. Right. So you're, you're saying to a woman that if a man has abused her, and obviously that's a wide spectrum, but some real levels of abuse, you would say she should seek to reconcile with him meaningfully, such as to be his wife. And again, I'm saying that this should not be something that is only on her shoulders, because I think that the psychological abuse that goes along with domestic violence does convince many women he will change. It will be different next time. And so I think that there has to be a substantial burden of proof on that man to prove change, not only to her, but to their wider Christian community before that reconciliation could happen. Because I do actually believe that Christ is life transforming, that we as sinners can change and we can do better. Um, So of course, like if I'm going to believe that on in my own life, I'm going to believe that of someone who's made terrible life choices and has been abusive in the past. But I don't think that he gets a pass or she gets a pass and just saying, oh, but 
it's their job to reconcile with me. Absolutely not. It is your job to prove that you have allowed the Holy Spirit to work that change in your life. And then that conversation about reconciliation can happen. And that is very common. Like if you you get, I get to see this with men and women all the time, but I see it more with men where they've done terrible things Mm -hmm. to their wife, um, usually over a period of years. And sometimes it's just like, terribly inconsiderate things. Sometimes it's not terrible like a sexual abuse. It's just terribly inconsiderate. Like they've just had a drinking problem. They just do anything about it. They just let it progress. And then their wife is like, you know what? I'm done. Right. I can't even. Right. And they're like, oh, I'll change. And they like, they, they totally change for like a week and or whatever. And then they're just angry that their wife doesn't want to come back. And I, as a pastor, and then they come to me and the couple comes to me and I'm like, you haven't done squat yeah seven days like how long were you a drunk 12 years you think she's just gonna be like oh sweetie you you fulfilled all my dreams like what what do you right but part of it too is is like we can't beat up guys with baseball bats anymore like there was an age in humanity where like if you were beating up on my daughter i could tell her cousins and they could threaten to beat you to death and like for a good bit of humanity that's how women were protected like they had families, there were men in those families. If you abused them, they might kill you. And that, like, if I go beat up some guy, like if I get some church guys together, we go beat up some guy that's beating up on his wife, we're going to go to jail, mm-hmm. you know? And so there are like these like historic multiple thousands of years, human activities that balanced the scales of negative power and sinfulness that have gone, just they're gone. And so now women are, women are kind of stuck in this situation where like, um, they're, they feel like their only tool is divorce mm-hmm. because very little can be done to discipline men. If they, if they turn men into the law, oftentimes they'll lose their jobs. And then then you got issues of child support and all the sorts of thing. Right. And so the woman is in that financial bind. Right. Or if she stays, nothing can be done. Right. I can do church discipline and I have done that. I've kicked guys out of the church when the husband and wife were still married and went here. Right. Mm -hmm. But, um, it's, there's, there's a limited number of options of what we can do. We can mentor if the man is willing or the woman is willing. And I think, may I just say too, like when I'm saying reconciliation, I don't, that's like, if a, if a woman has been sexually abused throughout her marriage and she really is like, I don't know that I can ever be in the same room with that person again. I'm not saying that in any way God says you have to reconcile with that person. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I am questioning whether just remarrying someone else is the answer in that life. And I think that one of the reasons that we immediately jump to, oh, remarriage is the, the answer is because we think, well, what else are we going to do with this person? What other structure can we put them in, right? Now they're another one of those troublesome single people that we don't know what to do with. And I think... And if they got married, we'd be, we'd be rid of two trouble with some single yes, people. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and, I, and there's some real truth to that, especially when children are involved. Children, you know, thrive with, with parents. Um, and so it's a complicated issue, but I do think that we But so need, are blended families. Yes. We need to have a better understanding of reconciliation just overall that's i think where my conservatism on this particular issue takes more dominance um when it comes to the question of remarriage i do think that reconciliation needs to be on the table for a lot longer and be considered much more strongly than it is in most of the situations of remarriage that i have anecdotally known of in my own life historically in very conservative churches Mm -hmm. and or roman catholic churches 
part of what was used to get people to take it very seriously was to say, if you do this, you're going to go to hell. You're going to hell. Like, and that doesn't sound to be that seem to be the tenor of judgment that you're advocating, right? Are there theological um, seriousnesses? Well, that, if you believe that, so the, there's two things that you can do to get there. Um, if you believe the covenant cannot be broken, that means that if you remarry, you are then in a persistent state of adultery. And if you believe you can lose your salvation, there is the passage that says adulterers will not inherit the kingdom. Right. So there you go. Hell, I mean, you can get there pretty easily, but it takes two, um, I think. Two whole steps of logic yeah, instead yeah. of just, you're going to hell. Got yeah. it. Okay. So if you want to take that view, there are definitely um, people out there who hold it. It's a pretty extreme conservative view when it comes to um, divorce and remarriage. But logically, if you believe the covenant cannot be broken, that is where it gets you. But you don't believe that. I don't. I think that covenants can be dissolved and broken. So then you think it's just a run of the mill sin? Like it's like, I mean. Well, sin is sin. Um, I mean, hierarchies of sin. That's something I, I talk about a lot at school. And I think I annoy all my friends when I bring up the word hierarchies of sin, because I'm not quite sure what to take of the argument that, um, there are. I mean, there are consequences, I think, emotionally, psychologically, socially, um, that make divorce remarriage significant in people's lives and can mm -hmm. definitely influence their walk with the Lord. And so it matters profoundly in that way, mm -hmm. um, because decisions that you make will influence the rest of your life and will influence your walk with the Lord and your work for his kingdom for the rest of your life. So in that way, it matters profoundly. But it, I mean... Beyond that, I don't believe you can lose your salvation. So, I mean, it's it's an earthly problem, and it's not going to be our problem, or it's not going to be my problem in a hundred years. I don't plan on living that long. So, do you think? Um, so, in Matthew five thirty two, it says, um, "But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity or pornea of sexual sin, mm -hmm. causes her." to become an adulteress or to commit adultery. Because it's assuming remarriage, which is pretty much economically necessary in that time if a woman right. is divorced. Yep. Right. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. I think that also assumes the former as well, mm -hmm. right? So that doesn't that, that whole scenario assumes remarriage is assumed. Right. That it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't move the needle on people thinking whether or not remarriage is okay. No, it often doesn't, right? Um, most of the time because they feel like there's a way that they can apply the Pauline exception, which is oftentimes in evangelical minds added to that. Like, But there's this desertion that right. happened, and that gives me the right to, to divorce, and then I can remarry without guilt. Yeah, I mean, one of the arguments that I've gotten, and this is a, lib this is a liberal small L argument, meaning we should interpret this more openly and generously than more like narrowly it's so it's, it's generic liberal in the generic sense right mm -hmm. is when people say you know when jesus says that so it's the question like if you could have jesus sitting here and you were like jesus you said only adultery like what if a guy literally is beating a woman into the hospital but isn't having sex with the wrong people would you really tell that woman her greatest recourse is separation but not divorce Right. And some people would say, yeah, this is one of those like, don't be an idiot objections where it would be like Jesus would be like, 
No, that is not what I meant. Mm -hmm. What I meant was, is that in the context of how people actually got divorced and remarried in the ancient world, everybody would assume if you beat a woman like that and she was protected by a family, they would just kill you or they would beat you to death or you'd go to jail. Like something would happen. Like that wasn't okay. But what people did all the time and people treated like it was okay was that if a man wrote a certificate of divorce for his wife, she was divorced. And that that was legal under the Mosaic law. Mm-hmm. And one of the one of the lines of rabbinical teaching was that um, a woman burning dinner was sufficient. Right, the Hillel school. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, anything anything more than that was sufficient for doing it right. And then another group was like, no, it, like the word in Deuteronomy means, or Exodus means indecency, which applies to you thought she was a virgin when you married her and she's not. Right. Which seems to be Jesus' view. Or something close to it. Anyway, and so Jesus is like, no, that's all wrong, right? And so if you look at it like in that, if you interpret it exegetically, that sort of general historical sense, which is like what always happens liberally speaking, where if you like, well, if you understand the historical context sufficiently, it's much broader than this, right? It allows for people to say that would allow for Jesus to have some no duh, uh, like exceptions like abuse. Mm-hmm. I hear that argument a pretty good bit too, where they don't actually use First Corinthians 7, but they're kind of like, do you really think if you would ask Jesus about physical abuse, severe physical mm-hmm. abuse, right. that he would be like, oh, no, not that? Well, it's a matter of, again, looking at who's asking him the question that is, it is the Pharisees. They're trying to entrap him using like these different schools of thought and how they interpret um, Old Testament law. And right. Christ does say, well, it's because of the hardness of your heart. So how do we take that? Well, that's why these any cause Um divorces right. are happening right and so it it's clear that the situation has gotten out of control mm-hmm. in jewish tradition in christ's view but what he does and i think this is what in most situations and people get really annoyed at me for doing this that he goes back to genesis and what the purpose of marriage is so again mm-hmm. we need a better doctrine of marriage that's what christ is telling us to focus on but yeah. no one likes to hear that in the heat of but I hate my spouse or, right. but things are really bad right now. Right. Um, I think that gets so. at a really important point for every Christian, right? Cause you might be listening to this because you listen to the engage and quit podcast and you're like, I like my spouse or I'm not married or we're not even dating or whatever. And I think one of the points, I don't know if you would make this point, Maggie, I would make this point is get your doctrine of divorce sorted out before you're married yeah. and hating your spouse. Like when you're single, when you're young and idealistic and you're willing to listen to anything Jesus would teach, even if it sounds insane, but you're like, Jesus has got it. He gets to teach us what to do. So, like sort out your doctrine of divorce. And that, like for Alexi and I, we've probably had three seasons in 20 years where it's like, if we could have, if we were allowed to divorce each other, we would have. Mm-hmm. And I, I only will ever say that about our relationship when we're in periods of time where our marriage is particularly good. But we've had, a, we've had like, like one here, one in Florida, one in Chicago, where it was just kind of like, what did we do? Why did we get married? Or like, I hate this life. And because we had the, like, like before we were ever married, we had read the Bible on this and we knew that Jesus was like, you don't get to divorce. Yeah. You don't get to do it. If that, if I hadn't believed that all the way down to like the marrow of my bones, I would have divorced her and it would have been a horrible mistake and it would have been a, a great sin and it would have harmed my children in at least two cases when we had children. It would have been horrible. And I, but in those moments, I would have thought it was so justified and so necessary for my future happiness. And I think that a lot of times we have bought into, and this is where I would say secular trends have really influenced evangelical thought on this, this idea that 
our happiness and our individual needs trump everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not true because we're part of something much larger than ourselves. And yes, it is a reciprocal relationship and God is deeply invested in us living extremely joyful, fulfilling lives, Mm -hmm. but he knows what's going to bring that out in us better than we do. Mm -hmm. And so there are moments when he's going to ask us to do things that in our minds don't equate to joyful, fulfilled lives. And by ask, you mean demand. Yeah. I mean, so I'll, 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 I'll say this and then I think we might need to wrap up, but um, I'll tell you why I picked this project. And yeah. it's it's kind of a lengthy story, but I think it's worth telling. Um, so my parents um, have a very complicated relationship with divorce and remarriage. And so um, I'll use their names. They don't care. They're cool people. So when they were in high school, um, my mom, Vicki, married a guy named Dave Stone. And they were lived in Janesville, right out of, you know, high school, young kids, kind of stupid. Um, They were not uh, believers in any way, and they got divorced. And my mother went and lived an interesting life. Uh, She had my sister and I, um, my sister's three years older than I am, uh, without getting married to our father. And during this time, her first husband, Dave Stone, her only husband, um, became a born-again Christian. And he read the Bible. He's like, you know what? I don't think I should have gotten divorced. I actually think she's still technically my wife in the eyes of God because our covenant has not been broken. And so he started writing to her and moved to the town where she lived. And he was in the hospital when my older sister was born. And he was in the hospital three years later when I was born. And that level of patience and dedication when everyone in his life told him he was being completely stupid, including okay. the church. So to clarify, he was in the hospital when these two girls were born that were not They his. were not his. They were not his children, but he was convinced that she was still his wife and that God was telling him, this is your family. Like you need to pursue her until there's no chance of reconciliation. And then he believed he would be single the rest of his life. Like that was his interpretation of that. And so he was there like, and through all of this, my mother thought he was nuts. Um, She was like, you know, I just don't love him like that. I look at him like a brother. Um, And she was relatively unconvinced by biblical arguments. um, And she become a Christian by this point. And so she did become a Christian. um, And I, I'm foggy on the exact details, but I do know that when I was six months old, they got remarried. So at that point, she had become a believer. They had started counseling in a church where a pastor was also telling her, no, like you should remarry this man. And she did not want to do it. I mean, I've seen like, there's like two pictures of their second wedding and she looks so miserable. Um, and oh, so- she was, I mean, she was really miserable for many years. And I, like my older sister and I can remember so many arguments where she would like pack us up in the station wagon and be like, I'm divorcing you again. And like haul us off to grandma's house. But my younger siblings don't remember that because they worked through it and it was not great. And like every single compatibility survey they've ever taken has said like they should have never gotten married. But I do think that that was what God asked of them. Like that was hard and it was in lots of ways terrible. But yet, and I look at their lives now and I see the testimony that that has had and the witness that that's been in the lives of other people that have gone through some pretty terrible times in in relationships. And you see a bigger picture there. And I certainly in my life, I mean, my goodness, I can't imagine what my life would have been like without my stepdad, who's 
you know, my dad, um, and my younger siblings, and you just see the way that God's plan flourished in that situation. And I think that too often we set aside that kind of reconciliation because it is so hard. Mm -hmm. And again, I remember how hard it was. So hard. But that is what God asked of them. And I think that that kind of story is what really keeps me focused on not necessarily, okay, who can and who can't divorce, Mm -hmm. but what's the bigger pattern here and how can we be that counter-cultural example of what marriage actually is to the world? Because Mm -hmm. that's what the world is looking for right now, is something that's different about us. And the Bible does teach something very different about marriage. Mm -hmm. And so if we just keep trying to argue for a way to be the same, I'm not going to be convinced easily. So Yeah. We may actually cut this portion out and put it at the front of the podcast. I just want to say for listeners that if I had known this story existed, we probably would have led with it. So that's, that's, you're certainly welcome to put it at the front. I could be like, well, let me start with what gave me this idea for my dissertation. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, do you have anything more you want to say here at the end about like, what, what is this greater doctrine of marriage? Is you've already said that like, you you have to take it back to the very beginning mm-hmm. and God creating a man and a woman for a union that would last. And it was, it, it, and it didn't dissolve because it was infected by sin. Sin comes into the world after the first marriage. And yet the first marriage doesn't dissolve. It stays together and it has to deal with sin. And, and Jesus is always pointing back to that, that even in a sin and sinful and fallen world, Jesus points back to this pre fall, mm-hmm perfect creation of complementary two there's you know there's no polygamy it's like it's just these two and they're joyful to receive each other and they're given this call of god to go into the world and to to create dominion and like that is what it's supposed to be and when god joins and god joined them and god joins people they should not be separated and just as god joined adam and eve as like the administrator over their wedding god is still administering every wedding and marriage now and you should see it that way and you should treat it that way yeah and i think the the biggest thing is it's it's not necessarily emotional we just we've bought the idea that this is an emotional bond and it's part of it i mean absolutely but it's also a relationship that's supposed to be a working relationship you're working together for the kingdom and so like that kingdom work that ministry i think needs a much more prominent place in our our view of marriage and what marriage is. We also need to view love as a skill, not as an emotion. Um, I think that's really significant as well. Would you say a higher theology of friendship too? Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That would also help with our singleness. Yeah. I I was going to say, yeah, that's, that's, that's one that uh, gets thrown a lot around on campus. All us single graduate students talking about "Mm, the higher theology of friendship. Higher theology of covenantal friendship. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was this joke at my seminary that there's a lot of talk about community at seminary, community, mm-hmm. the community. And there's some people that joked community is what single people do when they're on campus. <laughs> Cause all the married people were like, I have to feed my children and that's why I have a job and I can't right. come to your little community thing. And it was, it was bitterness the other way in those days. Yeah. And I think that there's also a tendency for us to take that, the, the leave and cleave part like that we're this independent family unit now that's married and separate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I don't think that's a very healthy way of viewing things either. I think that there is this kind of like single versus married divide. Um, 
And it's, I mean, it's, there's lots of reasons for it in our individual culture. I mean, the fact that we all have our own houses and garages. And I mean, there's, there's a lot systemically that supports that view yeah. of family life and community. Yeah, but I agree with, with yeah. people. I mean, the person I've heard yell this the loudest was Camille, is Camille Paglia. But just the, the, just the idea that the nuclear family is an extraordinarily unhealthy thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and not that marriages and families are unhealthy. They're very healthy. But like, she was like, you know, when I was a young woman... And she she's a lesbian, considers herself a trans, transgender, sort of, mm-hmm. um, and not, and I think an atheist. And she was like, the way I experienced life was like all the women coming together and cooking, and like my aunts and my grandmother and my mother, and like we would all spend time together, and the men would all like lean over cars, and like, like we, I learned how to be a woman among a dozen women, not just watching my mom. Mm-hmm. And so any faults my mom had got evened out by all these other women in my life, and and all that. And, she doesn't say all this. I'm extrapolating now, but like there is, there is this deep, and I see this with like families. You see this with couples that move to Madison away from their parents mm-hmm. and then they have a couple of children and they're, they're like, they don't have babysitters and they're, they're strung out and they're frustrated. And like the nuclear family by itself is not a very healthy thing, especially in a, both parents working economic assumption that we have to have enough money to be middle-class we have to make, you know, we have to do it. We have to live that lifestyle. Our kids have to have piano lessons. Then it's even worse because you've got two parents living unflexible working. It's, I mean, it's, and I think it's leading to a lot of divorces. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think it also is the reason that we don't know what to do with single people because the only thing to do is to invite them into a nuclear family. But then there is a threat. Like if you just randomly invite me over to, you know, your couple events, then yeah, I could see why I'd be a threat to your marriage. That's a terrible idea. But if you have a church community where there's people together doing things and you have women baking bread or, you know, I don't know, fixing cars, women can do that too. It's kind of awesome. Um, Like if you do that together, like then I don't feel weird because there's, Mm -hmm. you know, like. There's other ways of including single people into your lives. And I like babysitting kids. Like, I'm not offended that you have to go grocery shopping and you need me to watch your baby for a couple hours. Like, Mm -hmm. there are ways, I think, of integrating more life together in a way that it's hard um, and it's awkward because society tells us it's not what we're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. But we also have to be a lot more verbal about what threats exist. So, for example, I am a very intellectual person in general. So I like intellectual conversations, the way that our education system has trained people, most people who have those conversations with me are men. And women don't like that. Right. And so and I can understand why again, I'm not offended by that idea. But join the conversation, like ask me questions, I'd be happy to talk to Mm -hmm. you about things that interest you. But don't just shut me out because you don't think you can talk to me. Right? Like, that I think is intellectual conversations for people who wish to have them are very stimulating. And the observing woman watches you stimulate this man in that way. And that's going to naturally make them feel threatened. Right. And, or they could talk. Right. Exactly. Or, you know, start, there's, there's ways of, I think, engaging with that, that aren't backhanded and catty. And there's also ways of doing it that are backhanded and catty. And I realize it's a very anti-feminist thing to feminist thing to say, but I've been a part of enough of these conversations where I I know, Um, but there are, difficult things that I think we just avoid talking about or avoid relationships because we don't know how to invite 
uh, for example, we don't know how to invite a homosexual guy into our church community because, oh my goodness, hasn't the Catholic example taught us that this is going to be really bad? Mm-hmm. Um, well, no. The Catholic example has taught us, if if anything else, that not talking about this is really bad. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't in any way preclude us from loving those people in our community. Mm-hmm. And so I think we need to do that better. But anyway. Yeah. Kind of all yeah. over the map with this. Yeah, singleness and sexual minorities are like a whole other set of conversations yeah. that are as worthy to talk about as this. But I think um, I, I have I've seen this as a pastor that as a church, cause, and I, I think that your position is like very close to the experience at High Point, which is our, our views I think are fairly close on this. And I, I, I mean, I'm going to meet with a couple today where the wife sent me an email asking if she could have my blessing for her to get a divorce. Right. And I, I mean, I, I, I get one about one of these a month inside the, like some, sometimes they're just lightly connected to the church or they're looking for a pastor. Sometimes they're part of the church and they're some of that. They're just agonizing mm-hmm. because you don't want to just be like, does it fit the checklist? No. Okay. You can't get a divorce. Or, um, I know how to fix this, do these four things. Or whatever, like I, one of the, the most difficult ones I, I've had was a couple that came in and the wife was basically like, he's just really mean to me and our kids every, like constantly. And that was really difficult because she was essentially claiming abuse. He'd never hit her. He'd never sexually abused her, right? She argued that his physical, um, he used physical um, discipline on their children a couple times in a way she found abusive. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was like a teenage boy that was extraordinarily rebellious and that's tough to adjudicate. Right. But, and so like, I'm like, I labor with that thing for like a month. I met with them like five times and I studied the kids in the family, like how they were developing emotionally, whether they showed signs of consistent abuse, trying to figure out if he was highly abusive or she was highly sensitive and like sorting all that out with a psychological sophistication I have as a pastor, right. That, which is limited. Even though I have a lot of experience. I don't have a lot. Of, I don't have a lot of training. I mean, I've got maybe 30 hours of undergraduate and graduate work in psychology, which is not a lot, mm-hmm. you know, um, it was just agonizing just in it. And I still don't even know if I did the right thing or she did the right thing or he did the right thing. Yeah. I still don't know. I like the results of what, mm-hmm. it, what happened in that case, but I don't and- know. And that's the thing, too. I mean, it's awful. I'm not married, right? I'm sure people have ascertained that. Um, And so it's very easy for me to say things about the people that I've studied and the choices that institutions have made and theologians and people in their marriages, like I can very easily cast judgment from my armchair. Um, But I think that the, the theological ideals matter, even if they're not necessarily seen as the standard or a command. And that if you are really truly seeking the wisest path and the best path for your life, like don't try to read every single possible way into the exception that you can to make it apply to you, Mm -hmm. but do the reverse. Like really you have to, you have to come at it as how can I achieve this ideal in this broken world? as best as I can. And when you're dealing with any human relationship, other people are involved. So it's going to be really hard. But I think that flipping that, and of course, that's going to be crazy hard to do, 
when you're crying six hours a day because your marriage is the worst thing in your life. Yeah. So I want to just add to that for those who are listening. This is why if you're mentoring somebody, or if you're married, do not wait to get help. Mm-hmm. If your marriage isn't going well, get help as soon as possible with the most trustworthy people possible. If it's not helpful, engage somebody else. Do not wait seven years and then say, I can't do this anymore and then leave. Because it's very, it, you, you want to get at it as soon as possible when the least, you don't want to have a huge trash record. You don't want to bring kids in, in and complicate it more. And like, you want to get at it as soon as possible and get after it because it's much easier to correct things. It's much less misery. It is some embarrassment because you have to open up your heart in life. And a lot of people, it is astounding to me how many people would rather have the dignity of privacy in their misery than the the loving and sometimes judgmental help of their the family of God. Mm-hmm. And so we all I can do is just strive to make it as loving as I can. But man, this is this has been a, when if you believe that there are exceptions, but you have a high view of marriage, pastoring and loving people who are having difficulty and wonder if they should get divorced is one of the most stressful and difficult parts of being a pastor for me. Because the treason of empathy is always with me. I always want to be like, oh, sweetie, you're suffering. Well, you, I don't want you to suffer. Nobody wants you to suffer, right? And there's always this kind of like, well, I'll just turn my back on what Jesus has said for your feelings right now because you shouldn't have to suffer. And yet I don't want to be cold and I don't want to be legalistic with them. And then, of course, everybody's lying, right? Because your memory is never good. When you're, when you're engaging in like what you did wrong and what they did wrong, you can assume your memory is wrong. You can assume that you're lying or like that you're not telling the truth. You might not be lying intentionally, but you're not telling the truth. Mm-hmm. Memory is weird like that. And so you did more than you th- remember and they did, they did more than they really did. <laughs> you remember them doing more than they did. Yeah. And you remember yourself as justified and that you're a good person and therefore that they are a bad person. And you have all these concocted sorceries in your mind of what you think did or didn't happen. And you're like, so don't you see I'm suffering. They're bad. Me divorce. And as a pastor to, to take that wizardry and like sort it out into reality and say, actually you're just two troubled people troubled by your sin, troubled Mm -hmm. by your selfishness, troubled by your abuse of each other and troubled by things you've absorbed from the world and not absorbed from the word of God or, or walk, walking in step with the spirit of God. And what you need to do is repent and believe and begin to go in another direction. Man, that is so, it's the hardest thing I've, I do as a pastor. I think I can't think of anything in pastoral ministry harder than that, except the only thing I could say that might be harder is walking with a same sex attracted person mm. or a transgender person. That's the only thing I know that could be harder to walk with somebody than that. Yeah. And so I do think that as a church, we need to strive to mentor and lead people in godliness and all that. All right, Maggie Flamingo, uh, make sure you read her dissertation when it comes out. Yeah. Every maybe page. more than one person will read it. That's another yeah, nitpicky thing page. from a podcast. You once said maybe one other person will read your dissertation. I was like, excuse me, sir. I have a committee of five. At least three of them will read it. We'll read it. Yeah. So there. But yeah. yes. I've heard so many PhD people say, I'm pretty sure my advisor didn't read my dissertation. I am not one of those people. Yeah, that's good. You're he reads good it too education. carefully. So, um, so we should we'll call it quits here for today. Maybe yeah. you'll come back to talk about singleness or sexual minorities another time. And um, but uh, yeah. So uh, Maggie Flamingo, thank you for being with us. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us online on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like that. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a substantive disciple and a part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or otherwise share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways that we have to reach new listeners. So until next time, thanks for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.